0: ABC Grandstand Digital on ABC Grandstand Digital this is More more than just a game
1: G'day there and welcome to more than just a game on Grandstand Digital it's Paul Roach with you here once again and we've got another big show coming up as always We'll be looking at the rather tetchy fallout from that cricket autobiography and talk to someone who knows better than anyone else about the story behind the story. We'll look over the wash-up of the Melbourne Cup, cast our eye over some selection conundrums and controversies being faced by a number of our national teams at the moment, and of course, wrap it all up with red card, yellow card. Joining me to put the sporting world to rights, a man whose eagerly awaited autobiography will most definitely be penned by the man himself, Stephen Riley. Ryles, welcome. It all started when I was born. And uh, thanks for that. And the man who was first to coin the immortal phrase, Rochi, the silly season starts on Melbourne Cup Day, Simon Johnson.
2: I love this time of year, Rochi. I, I love this time of year, Rochi. Just love it.
1: It's fantastic, isn't it? Actually, John, on that, you'll be very pleased to know that um, uh, an ABC local contributor, James Valentine, I wrote an article by him where he was describing that exact phenomenon that you've been espousing for number of Early years. November
2: until Australia Day. Until Australia Day. Clock fantastic. on, clock off.
1: Anyway, let's get cracking. More than just
0: a game on ABC Grandstand Digital.
1: Ricky Ponting's recently released autobiography at close of play has Shaw sure managed to set a cat amongst the pigeons, which is kind of ironic, really, because it seems that pigeons, in fact, pretty much the only one of the recent greats not to have thrown in his two Bobsworth. What an unfortunate little postscript to one of the great years of Australian cricket.
2: This is right, Ritchie. Um The book, I think, is 699 pages, but everyone seems to be focusing on about four or five lines, where uh, Ponting has a, a little bit of a crack about Clarkie's early years in the team, an allegedly selfish attitude not putting the team first. Um, Tubbs Taylor has come out and said what goes on in the dressing room should stay there. Warney's come out and had a, a very um, stern defence of his best mate, Clark, and saying Ricky is just jealous. But it's great stuff, isn't it? Great to see some of that controversy.
1: It's a fair bit of back and forth. I do love the Warney quote, uh, one of the Warney quotes. He's a man who um, needs to be in the, in the public eye, doesn't he? Uh, Warney says, I've got nothing mean to say or, ba- or a bad word about Ricky, but... But? And I bold? I put, in the, I put in the word but there, but you know, I'm just sort of paraphrasing the next half sentence. I know he beats himself up merciless about being the only captain ever in Australian history to lose three Ashes series. And I know he regrets and beats himself up about the fact that he's the brunt of jokes whenever someone puts the opposition in after that horrific decision in
3: Edge Bass in two thousand and five.
2: Put that knife in.
3: Yeah, just let us know <laughs> on that. Bit oh, of hold on, hold on a second, fellas. Just what could he say if he had a bad word? Well, exactly. I'm just
1: <laughs> wanting to let us know when uh, that no bad word having a it kicks in a bit. But um, yeah, look, it's a bit of a shame to see uh, to see the guys having a little bit of a tit for tat. It's a bit
2: of sort of airing dirty laundry, isn't it? It is. But it's great to read, isn't it? Great to see. Adds a bit of yeah, spice. The, the,
3: the book's going to be a big disappointment now. Those other 690 pages, are, are, <laughs> which are all about, you know, interesting series, things that have never happened before, and, you know, award-winning undefeated teams, three, you know, lost Ashes series, are all going to pale into insignificance now, if the press is to be believed.
1: Right, well, like the rest of the media, we're happy just picking, up, picking the eyes out of the controversial bits. Thanks very much. But listen, <laughs> uh, perhaps to add to this conversation, joining us on the line now to talk some more about Ricky Ponting's book prolific ghostwriter and the man who, uh, who was behind Ponting's book, Jeff Armstrong. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Good, thanks, Jeff. Um, listen, Jeff, can you start maybe by telling us a bit about your involvement in the book at Close of Play? You, you were the ghostwriter, in effect, were you not?
4: That's right. I, I worked with Ricky. Uh, I think Ricky wrote six or seven annual diaries, and I worked with Ricky on the most recent five of those, and then the autobiography was a natural extension of that. So it was a case of, um, it was a long, long job. We actually, the book was contracted, I'm guessing now, I think it was about the start of 2011, perhaps even earlier than that. So we've been working on that book for a long, long time because all, an Australian career captain at the end of his career is going to write, uh, is going to produce his autobiography. And uh, it seemed ridiculous to us for Ricky to retire and then we'd work work our butts off over a short period of time to get the book out as soon as possible. So we, we did work on the book for about three years Uh, setting it up for the release last month
3: and that's sensational Did, did was it called in 2011 you know batting on
4: uh, it's, it's funny, I actually had no uh, role in the title at all. That's something that publishers like. The publishers aren't that keen often to get involved in the nitty-gritty of word after word, but the title they like to get involved in.
2: Jeff, just in relation to um, the, the story we were talking about before, um, at the time you were talking to Ricky about um, the, his views on Michael Clark and, and that particular part of the book, did you have a sense when you were having those discussions with him or when that was going in the book that that was going to be a controversial issue? Were there, were there ongoing discussions with Ricky about whether, for example, that should actually go in the book? book
4: well the conversation was right through the whole book and not just about the uh, michael clark but also about things like his test taboo the bourbon and beefsteak uh how his brain worked at the end of his career It was about being honest and it's what i found i have found interesting over this whole process is that the chapter on michael clark is not nearly as bad as what people have made out it's actually in my view a very it's a very mature bit of writing on ricky's part because he looks at the relationship with pup he took him under his wing at the start of his career Um, There was a period around 2000 and 2007, 2008 when um, there were a few concerns about Michael Clark. But as Ricky says in the chapter, Michael Clark has has essentially grown up a lot since then, in the same way that Ricky did uh, a decade earlier. And by the time Michael Clark uh, became the Australian captain, he was, in Ricky's view, I think in most people's view, 110% the right choice. But we have a situation where um, a headline is put on an extract, that then, you know, Ponting Slam Clark becomes the story when it's not actually true. And then it's been, um, it's been really interesting over the last couple of weeks the way the story's been given so much energy by high-profile people like Mark Taylor and Shane Warne, um, criticizing the book without having read it.
1: So, Jeff, you talk about an extract. Mm. Who's putting out that extract?
4: That, that's a, a negotiation between um, Ricky, Ricky's management, the publisher, and the, um, the media um, people involved.
1: Cause, cause, sorry, you go on.
4: Oh, well, I was just going to say, and then from that, once the, it's determined what that extract might be, there, there's the headline writers as well. And then, after that, there is the interpretation of it in the media. And I even think if you look at how it was originally presented by News Limited, it wasn't as lively an extract as, has, as it has since become.
1: So I'm sort of, um, tell us a bit more about that dynamic. So I mean, presumably there are three parties here all seeking similar, but nonetheless fairly different results. There's, there's yourself as the ghostwriter, there's, there's the star, obviously in this okay. case, Ricky, and then you've got the publishing house who presumably, let's face it, it's, it's a, they're a business, so this is a profit-making exercise. Tell us a bit about that dynamic between those three parties, if indeed and if indeed there's not more.
4: Well, in terms of this book, all the publisher HarperCollins required was for Ricky. Well, what they wanted was for Ricky to be honest, and that's what Ricky has been. What would have had Ricky written the sort of book I think Shane Warren wanted him to write? It would have been it would have been frankly tedious. But what Ricky's done, and it's not just the chapter on Clark. If you look at the chapter on the Bourbon and Boostake, for example, it's a really mature adult chapter. Unfortunately. Um, you know, different people get in. Just look at certain, even down to sentences, even down. I think you guys said at the end of the introduction, down to words almost, and can twist things to suit themselves. But I think in this case, the publisher recognised by signing the Australian captain that, uh, that they were they had a book that would sell. I mean, Steve Waugh's book sold two, I think two hundred and thirty thousand copies. Adam Gilchrist has sold one hundred and forty, hundred and fifty. These books sell in big numbers. They didn't need Ricky to be controversial for the sake of it. And I don't think Ricky has been controversial for the sake of it. On the contrary, I think Ricky's written a really open and really honest book. Uh, and I think that's Ricky. In fact, what I found really interesting, if it just changing the subject slightly, when talk, when Ricky talks about Monkeygate, every conversation we've had from the first one has been really the same as what he said publicly. He hasn't hinted anything. And uh, that's the sort of bloke he is.
3: Jeff, how much do you have to change your style to capture the voice of the subject of the autobiography?
4: Um, hopefully a lot. I, I'd like to think that the different books that I've ghosted don't all sound the same. Um, I know, for example, years ago when I ghosted Mike Whitney, my job was to put the tape out there and let Whit talk. And then as long as i got got the different accents he put on when he's impersonating <laughs> Viv Richards or, you know, uh, Courtney Walsh, as long as I can do that, that, that was the book. Um, I'd like to think that... Um, when I ghost Ricky that it sounds um, different to when I ghosted Ian Healy for example because they're two different people but what I try to do I, I don't just try and write down as they would talk because I mean someone like Ian Healy Ian Healy didn't need me to write his book he could have written it himself But ironically, I think the one thing Ian Healy lacked at the start of the project was just the confidence in himself as a writer. But the fact is, he's a really smart bloke and a really shrewd bloke, and he could have written the book himself. Mm. But my job is basically to put myself in uh, Ian Healy or Ricky Ponting's shoes as if they they were writing. And so I just don't have to sort of reproduce ad hoc what they might say um, or verbatim what they say on a tape, but it's to sort of, you know, as they were writing, hopefully, and writing in a style, you know, as if they were writing to their parents or to their kids or grandkids when they were recalling their career.
1: So, Jeff, how does it actually work? So, obviously, it works in different ways for different individuals, as mm-hmm. you have just described there, but do yeah. you sort of go over to their house with a tape recorder in hand or with a great big pad? I mean, I, I'm interested in actually the really the real nitty-gritty. We understand basically what you do, but yeah. what's a, um, what, as, what is an interaction?
4: As an example, a uh, better example, when I did George Gregan's book, uh, first I sat down, I'd never met George, I just admired him as a footballer. I sat down with George and, and discovered he's a really nice guy. And then I then said to George, do you have any scrapbooks of your career? I mean, I've got a, I'd like to think I've got a reasonable knowledge of Australian rugby. But George said, oh, I haven't got anything, but my dad might have something. So I rang up George's dad, went down to their house in Canberra, and George's dad had a colossal collection of scrapbooks. So that I then went right through them and then I felt as though I knew George's career reasonably well and at that point I then sat down with George and asked him questions based on the information that I had. The critical thing that I had to work out was what was important to George, what issues matter to him and to really try and get in, inside his head and try and find out how he was feeling. I mean, it sounds really basic but the, the most important question for a ghostwriter is always how did you feel? And if you can get that how the subject feels through in the in the text, then you've done a reasonable job.
2: Jeff, um, from my point of view, a, a good example of a, a sports autobiography is the Andre Agassi Open Book. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's an example that even if you weren't a tennis fan or, or a fan of Andre himself, you, you'd probably. If you pick that up and have a read of it, it'd be a great book. I think, um, I mean, would you agree that it's all about telling the story? Is there? A, have you read that one? And is oh, there anything
4: absolutely. Yeah, look, it's actually an, it's an extraordinary seller. I had just how many copies it sold. And the reason it sold a lot of copies is because it's very, very good. The other thing that, Agassi made a conscious decision that he wanted to, I mean, the book's called Open. He wanted it to be open. And he also hired, uh, I think, can't remember the name of the ghostwriter, but he was a guy who is not a traditional ghostwriter, but he was a person who knew Agassiz. They had a, obviously had a keen rapport, and the book, um, the book, so it, it is a class above most ghostwritten books. It's one of those books that I, when I read it, I'm thinking, gee, I wish I could do this because it is excellent.
3: It and was J. J. R. Moringer. That's the, right. The guy.
4: Yeah. And he did a superb job, but also Agassi did a superb job. I mean, it wasn't as if Agassi said, you know, gave the guy a couple of in- interviews and the guy went away and then wrote the book. Clearly they worked as a team. And I think the best ghost-written books are all- always those where, um, you know, where you do work as a team. Uh, so I found that with Ricky. I did five diaries with Ricky. And, and, you know, without trying to speak too much out of school, I think the quality of them declined from the first to the fifth because Ricky was just so busy. But he committed himself to the autobiography, and um, consequently, it's a very, very good book.
1: Jeff, uh, just a final question before that you go. Uh, Michael Clark has his own book out before the first test. Apparently, a diary of the Ashes campaign in England. Yeah. Given he's uh, still playing, can we expect too much uh, explosive material in that one?
4: I don't think so. But that can still—I mean, I haven't obviously haven't seen it. I, I can still be a very worthy document. And I mean, again, I go back to that situation with Monkeygate and Ricky. I um, I was kind of hoping that Ricky had have all this um, spare material that he kept up his sleeve to make Monkeygate a really, you know, a really lethal chapter, if you like. But the fact was, he was very open at the time. He was open with the book that we did at the time, and um, so there, there's still, I guess, Michael Clark will have to might have to keep a few things, um, you know, kept away. But at the same time, I think that he can still produce a really interesting book about how the team went, the machinations of the dressing room. Um, But I guess he's got to be careful not to reveal too much or Shane Warren might get upset.
1: All right, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for your time, Jeff. We'll have to leave it there. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks very Uh, much. My pleasure. Thank you. Jeff Armstrong there, who uh, Ghost wrote, if that's a verb, Ricky Ponting's autobiography, amongst many others, as you just heard there. Uh, Quickly, before we leave, Cricket Gents, obviously, uh, Ash's very topical do we have a quick prediction for the uh, the series in Australia, Jono? Yeah,
2: look, I, um, I think uh, Dave Warner will be man of the series and two uh, one to the Aussies.
3: Riles, what are your thoughts? Yeah, two one to the Aussies.
1: And the Aussies. Well, I'm uh, down three nil in a best of ten series with a few bob on it, so I need Australia to win three 0 So if uh, if we could arrange three 0 that'd be that'd be just terrific. Um, all right. Well, perhaps all the um, the Ponting kerfuffle might have served to deflect some of the attention from the uncertainties of the current Australian side. Good luck,
0: fellas. Bring those Ashes home. Each weekend, ABC Grandstand brings you all the action of the
2: A-League.
0: But if you missed all the action from your side's last round, never fear. We've got you covered with A-League replays. Grandstand Digital Replay Replay Tune in for full match replays every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday on Digital Radio ABC Grandstand Grandstand Digital For broadcast details on Grandstand's coverage of the A-League check out the Grandstand broadcast schedule online More than just a game on ABC Grandstand Digital
1: you're on more than just a game here on Grandstand Digital with me, Paul Roach, Simon Johnson, and coming out of our Melbourne studios, Stephen Riley. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at mtjag Grandstand. Well, after twenty odd years, Gay Waterhouse finally cracked the big one at Flemington and can I say gave one of the most delightful little interviews on her way down in the winner's circle, I thought. Uh, How did you go, Jono? Did you see the silly season in suitable style, and uh, did you have a win?
2: The answer to the first question, Rochi, is yes. Very suitable style indeed. I think it might be the beginning and the end of my silly season this year, unfortunately, but um, uh, no winners. A a very credible fourth on Simone, I think it was.
1: Congratulations. I um, managed to draw the favourite in the $2 family sweep, uh, and so as a consequence, my strategy sort of backed that a bit further. So I had a few bucks each way on that. So I was uh, screaming at the horse coming down the straight at the, uh, at the work function at my, at my second job. Uh, Riles, what about yourself coming out of the, out of Melbourne there? It's a public holiday down there, isn't it? Well, tell, talk, talk us through that.
3: <laughs> public holiday is sensational. The, the only thing I miss about it, funnily enough, uh, having spent a uh, majority of my, uh, school and working life in, uh, in Sydney and elsewhere, is is that experience of watching the Melbourne Cup at work, or you know, for the younger listeners, at school, it's not something that happens here. You know, you it's a private affair how you uh, how you enjoy the Melbourne Cup, <laughs> and that's that that changes the dynamic a little bit. That said, um, it's all consuming for the city. They don't talk call it the Melbourne Cup down here; they call it the Cup. Let's be clear, and uh, and the sixteen pages a day that were devoted to the AFL for the rest of the year, dropped down to about, oh, I don't know, six or seven, because uh, it's the off-season after all, and there's 16 that are dedicated to the Cup. Ros, you uh, you said they
1: call it the Cup. Oh, I did notice on the coverage on the telly, and they've been doing this the last couple of years, I'm not sure if it's new, um, referring to it, to it as the Great Race. Is this something I've only noticed recently, or has the Melbourne Cup always been known as the Great Race?
3: I, I dare say your rev-headedness has uh, obscured you to that description of uh, the Melbourne Cup you for have a seen, very, very, long time. You've seen me
1: coming from a mile away here, Riles, because <laughs> Bathurst is the great race. <laughs> it's
3: also,
2: uh... it's, I think it's also, uh, insert square brackets, International Airline, close square brackets, Cup these days, isn't it? Yeah. That seems to be the way uh, things operate. True, sure, sure, sure. But um,
1: anyway, look, I've... Look, I don't know, maybe... So, Riles. you reckon that's been going on for quite a while and I just haven't yeah. noticed?
3: Look, I think what's, what's really amazing about it down here as as a great race is it's worthy of a public holiday. I'll tell you a new bit of information for me. Uh, some uh, f- friends of mine who work down in Geelong said that they have an option to take their public holiday on Geelong Cup Day, which was a couple of weeks ago, which, from what I could tell, is a purely... Um uh, uh can you be patriotic about a, a city? It's it's a, almost thumbing their nose at Melbourne and saying, We're not taking your holiday, people. We've got our own holiday, nang damn it. And uh there it is, there it is, the Geelong Cup public they, holiday.
1: They've got a number of different city states uh in, in Victoria. <laughs> actually, um and speaking of the work experience Riles, the, the work new word experience, um actually I'm just um getting some breaking news here on my on my screen. Apparently the Third Umpire, our uh, our producer here Managed to clean up in the ABC sweep and won a grand hundred and fifty dollars. So well done, third umpire. That was a good get. So Milky bars are on uh, on the third umpire after the show. Um, yeah, look, can I just share with you a bit of experience I had at work? Um, yeah, it's a very civilized approach. They the the powers that be block off a couple of hours in the calendar and encourage people to dress up, and they put on a feed and put on some booze. And uh, you know, having encouraged people to dress up, they do a bit of a fashions in the field. So. People are, of course, uh, volunteered. no one actually volunteers themselves to stand up and parade around the, the boardroom table and uh, do a bit of showing off. and, and we, we get a bit of, uh, a bit of pe- a piece of paper, one, two, three, um, vote for your, your top three, goes into a hat. and then spontaneously, someone said, let's do a brownlow count. So this 30 or 40 tickets or something got pulled out of the hat one by one and up on the whiteboard, Went um, went the result went the the progressive results it was it was fascinating and it was actually a really close call and, and you know Christy just beat Lee on the last ticket it was amazing
2: did you have uh, Russell Crowe a la the Dally M Awards up the up the front or someone the equivalent thereof
1: look uh, let's just call, call him AB AB, AB did a Greg, really good job at short notice um, better than
2: Andrew Demetrio probably for oh, the uh, Brownlow
3: look was was HR in the room <laughs> <laughs>
2: the could have all gone pear shaped <laughs> would have been a human resources incident oh mate the beauty of um, my
1: second job is we had a, don't actually have a HR department so uh, that deals with that problem really effectively so um, oh well uh, look the Melbourne cut run and run for another year Jono it's official the silly season has begun it's down tools till January 28
0: the English Premier League is back on ABC Grandstand Digital Tune in for full match commentary of the EPL every Monday morning the Newcastle Champions of Europe for broadcast details visit abc.net.au slash grandstand And get your fix of the EPL on ABC Grandstand Digital. Giggs screws it into the bottom corner. Make your Monday EPL Monday. More than just a game on ABC Grandstand
1: Digital. Ian Chappell is never short of an opinion when it comes to the state of Australian cricket and one of his more recent utterings was the daring assertion that selections should be made based on, can you believe it, results.
2: Yeah, chipelli he's uh, a man who calls a spade a shovel, doesn't he? I think this came about because he was um, suggesting that George Bailey should not be picked. Um, Bailey seems to be um, predicted, widely predicted to be the, the number six in the first Ashes test. And Ciappelli's saying, well, how can you have a bloke like that who, yes, he's a bit of a flat-track bully and has done well in the one days over in India, but he only averages 38 in shield cricket, so why would he be picked? And this seems to get to the theory of, are we picking people now who are good team players, good team men, or good for the culture? That seems to be uh, one of the reasons why Bailey is regarded so highly. Or should we be picking people on results?
1: Ross, what do you reckon? Have you got a firm opinion on that one? You usually... Uh, <laughs> you can...
3: I, look, I, I think he's got a really good point. If he could show me someone with results, I'd pick him. Um, but but I think there's there's something to be said if you look back at the history of successful Australian cricket, which we've had uh, uh, until very recently, a pretty good sample to look at. And there were results that had to force their way into the team, not with just one good season, but arguably you know, three back-to-back. And even then, players like Brad Hodge, who had unbelievable results, still couldn't get in.
1: You're in Grandstand Digital here, more than just a game. Paul wrote Stephen Riley and Simon Johnson. I think he may, he being Chapel makes a good point though. Surely we actually need people who, uh, uh, I don't know, that, that are actually no. I think the point that he makes that resonates with me is that one day form, short form, short form of the game form, <laughs> does not mean you're ready for Test match cricket. Um, so when you've got Kawaja, for example, who who tonked a great hundred uh, for Queensland in a in a one day in sort of very early November, I think it was. You know, suddenly all the talk becomes uh, he's a, he's a Test prospect. I, I just really struggle to uh, accept that slogathon form is legitimate form to warrant Test match selection.
3: Discuss. You pick, you, you pick players on their ability to 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 get the team over the line. Now, if, when you don't have test match form or sheffield shield form you go to the you have to choose from you know the the subsidiary lists and one of those is one day cricket i don't think george bailey's been picked on one day cricket i don't think it hurts what he's done in india i think he's been picked on the continuing success of the tasmanian shield team on the his success under pressure in big matches uh, in in and even though he's got a very poor average you know in sheffield shield finals and the like which is why I think that Mr Faulkner might be joining him in the test team, and when the going gets tough uh, this season, especially if Watson pulls out injured, so I think characters are a fair reason to to get yourself into the team if there's no one else banging on the door with enough runs.
2: And I suppose on, on that argument, Steve Waugh was picked and kept in the test team for many years on the basis of character and talent as opposed to results. It took him that long to get his first test century. Justin Langer as well probably didn't have a great start to his test career, but um, we, we stuck with him and gave them a chance. So it's the old um, pick-and-stick approach um, as opposed to um, uh, what other people might suggest, you just look at results in the long term.
1: The other comment that uh, Chapelli made that I liked the sound of was that there is no, there was no more hardheads left in grade cricket and I, I um a friend of a friend of a friend uh, was in mixed up in I think sort of second grade mainly but there came a point where he was about twenty five I think and the powers at B basically decided and I think it was more than just his club and his level it was it was a bit more sort of across the board than that decide that if you hadn't ma- hadn't made it by twenty five they were no longer interested in you. So grade cricket has, maybe for other reasons as well, become a bit of a, a glorified schoolboys comp. And I think the point that Chapelli makes is that you can get young fellas in grade and they used to be up against, a I don't know, maybe a 42-year-old Bob Holland who knew how to...
2: You Greg know. Ma- Greg Matthews, yeah, exactly. still going around. Yeah, exactly. he's, he's 65 yeah. and still playing first grade, isn't
3: he? <laughs> you, you also had test players, current test players, who yeah. had to play some uh, some club cricket. But I think that this is twofold, right? He, he mentioned that the young boys don't get to play against men anymore... But the catch is at the shield level and at sort of one level below, you also have older guys hanging around for the, the cash because of the professional game. And not everything is coming down now to uh, it's all about you know talent and interest and moving on. People are hanging around in a job. Very
1: quickly, uh, let's move on to have a quick look at soccer. Speaking of selection conundrums, a very interesting time for football uh, with a change of coach, Ange Postalio coming in and very quickly making some changes. Schwartz's retirement, uh, it's very hard not to be um, uh, wonder whether there was a bit more to it than a pure retirement. Uh, Luke Wilkshire was left out of the squad, of, initial squad of 22 for the Costa Rica-friendly, again, sort of early, early Novemberish. Um, so again there's this old versus well there's an old versus new there's an old guard versus new new guard coming in there
2: it's also a short-term long-term thing isn't it do we pick a side for example in the soccer who we think are going to perform respectably in Rio next year um, and try and keep a few of the old heads there or do we actually bite the bullet and, and pick a side that's going to be to form the the nucleus of a side for the next four to six years and perhaps give us a good shot of actually going further in the next world cup
1: Riles, a quick thought. We need to sort of wrap this up shortly, but a quick thought on what the fan is entitled to expect of their national teams, given what we've said so far.
3: You read my mind, Paul. I was about to say, you're a fanatic. You've paid (laughs) tens of thousands of dollars to get yourself to Rio next year, and you will be watching the the second best, or maybe the first and a half best Australian team because they are playing for the future, and I applaud that. But if I'm the fanatic, I'm not sure what I think. Oh, uh, look, who'd be a selector,
1: eh? It's way more fun sitting back here and being one of the armchair kind. The
0: Bell Lap on ABC Grandstand. Oh, Digital, damn it. Missed online. it again. If you've missed a show on Grandstand Digital, don't worry. You can go online and listen again. And listen again. Simply log on to abc.net.au slash grandstand and click on the audio link. So if you miss a show, you know where to go. abc.net.au slash grandstand. Red card, yellow
1: card. Yes, bringing it home on uh, more than just a game here on Granson Digital, red card, yellow card, where we poke fun at sports people who've mucked up off the field of play. Jono, quickly, what have you got for
2: us? Josh Papali, the uh, kangaroo, six-foot-tall, 110-kilogram forward, was robbed at an ATM on the very first night of the kangaroo's tour. So he's literally lobbed into London, gone out uh, on the first night. I love the quote from the police that night. Police have spoken to a 21-year-old man about the incident which occurred in the early hours of the morning. The man has not been able to fully recall what happened and therefore no offence has been recorded.
1: Could not (laughs) not recall, Your Honour. A gentle little (laughs)
3: yellow card there, perhaps? I think it's at least a yellow. Riles, what have you got to share with us? Uh, The Australian International Rules team were out till 5 a.m. in the morning over in Ireland. They then subsequently lost uh, their next match by about 100 points. And Michael O'Loughlin defended the whole thing by saying it was about team bonding. Now, I'm giving a yellow card, not to Michael, not to the team, but to the AFL for continuing with this ridiculous international rules match which deserves drinking till five in the morning.
1: <laughs> There's a topic unto itself, isn't it? The, uh, the relevance <laughs> or otherwise of, of international rules. Um, and finally, from me, uh, Ryan Stig, uh, who's played 13, I think, NRL games in total, but it hasn't stopped him weighing into the, um, the debate about gay marriage. It's a fair bit of uh, publicity. It's a very topical thing at the moment, obviously, uh, re- fairly regular at present. Um, And look, I'll I'll spare you the the full diatribe, but uh, he made clever use of Twitter, um, knowing he was limited to 140 characters. Would
2: would we call it clever? (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, well, hear me out. Clever in a a logistical kind of way. Um, Made a a long, wrote a big long thing, which he took a photo of, and he tweeted, the photo. Best quote, as far as I'm concerned, was, our Western scientific rationalist society attempts to blind us from spiritual disease. There we go.
3: Think about that one. <laughs> uh,
1: right. it's, it's a very quick a farewell to Simon Johnson. Thanks for being with us. See you, Roach. Riles down there in Melbourne. Thanks to you, mate.
3: That was super deep. I'll say goodbye, photograph it, and send
1: it on Twitter. Please do. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes to search for more than just a game on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at mtjag.nowsno.mtjag. Uh, no m-t-j-a-g grandstand. It's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. We'll see you next time.
0: tuned right here on ABC Grandstand Digital.